Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, and welcome to History of Portugal. I'm Rob Mendez, and this is episode 14, Emirates in Crisis. This episode of History of Portugal is brought to you by the generous members of our Patreon community. You too can support this project by going to patreon.com forward slash history of Portugal and sign up for a tier of support. And where you will be able to ask any questions you like and have them answered on the show. And thank you so much to David for signing up already and helping to ensure the longevity of the show. And if financial support is not in the cards for you right now, you can help me grow this podcast by recommending it to friends, family, co-workers, anyone really. And please give us a rating and a review on your platform of choice. I do love reading those, and it helps to know that people are really interested in the show. I do appreciate it. Last episode, we covered the momentous reign of Alfonso III, and talked a little on his conquests and administrative workings in the land that would one day become North and Central Portugal. We also covered his conflicts with the Emirate of Córdoba, where the savvy monarch took full advantage of the ever-growing chaos in Al-Andalus. This episode, we will dive deeper into that very chaos and find out how exactly the strong kingdom that Abdallahman II left to his son verged on the edge of collapse. And now, let's get started. The Emir... Abdallahman II died in the year 852 in his official residence, the Alcazar, beside the great mosque in Córdoba. We have two differing accounts on what exactly happened following the death of the emir. 
What we can consider to be the official account is rather straightforward and bland, stating only that Muhammad succeeded his father to the throne without opposition. The second, more salacious version, written by the admittedly gossip-prone Ibn Aqyuta, gives us a more colorful account. According to him, the matter of succession was decided behind the scenes by palace eunuchs. The death of the emir was kept a secret, and an undisclosed meeting of palace officials was held. Many argued in favor of appointing the prince Abdullah, whom just so happened to be the son of Abdullahman II's favorite concubine, who also just so happened to have been very generous to those same officials. But one of the officials, who we are told was a very virtuous and pious man, made the point that Abdullah was quite unworthy, and if they appointed him, the people would not be happy, and they would lose power as a result. He swayed them to approach Muhammad instead, a man with a dynamic personality, but one who had a reputation for meanness. The matter now being settled, it was time for the most dangerous part of their plan, to get Muhammad to the palace and officially bestow him with royal authority without alerting Abdullah and his supporters that something was afoot. Both princes were in their respective residences in the city that evening. Once the officials were in the presence of Muhammad, they had trouble convincing him that his father was really dead and that this wasn't some kind of ruse to get him killed. Once he was convinced that this wasn't a trap, the prince was disguised as a woman and led through the dark streets, past the palace of Abdullah, where apparently a ruckus party was going on. They made their way to the back gate of the Alcazar, whereupon they had to convince an understandably confused and suspicious doorman to let them in. Once in possession of the palace, the prince took his oath of office and subsequently summoned the viziers, the servants, and other court members. By dawn, it was a done deal, and the 30-year-old Muhammad set about choosing his new ministers. See, isn't this version more fun? And even though we should take this version of the succession with a heaping dose of skepticism, it does give us some interesting insights into the political life of the era. For one, it showcases the importance of palace eunuchs and servants, along with the need to secure the Alcazar in Cordoba in order to claim the throne. Now compare this to when Abdallahman I died less than a century ago, when Hisham and his brother summoned their respective forces and settled this question through blood and iron on the battlefield. The government of Al-Andalus was no longer a successful warband, but a palace-based bureaucracy. The new emir is described as pious, scholarly, and especially gifted at arithmetic, capable of checking all of the kingdom's accounts. At first, Muhammad retained a fair number of his father's administrators, 
and by all accounts, did a fairly good job at replacing them with competent substitutes. Though, around 875, he started to rely more heavily on a certain court member called Hashim ibn Abdulaziz. More on him later. Certain medieval Arab chroniclers try to inflate the emir's contributions towards holy war, but campaigns against the infidel were sporadic and almost non-existent towards the end of his reign, given the internal problems he was constantly facing. Muhammad seemed quite happy to outsource leadership of the holy war to our old friend, Musa bin Musa, of the Benukasi up in the Ebro Valley. However, as is the problem with most outsourcing, it may be convenient, but it's convenience at a price. In this case, the prestige and wealth that resulted from raids and battles against the Christians all went to Musa and his family, not the emir. After Musa's death, Muhammad decided to pursue a more active policy utilizing the leadership of holy war raids as a tool to give his son's experience and much-needed prestige to the family name. It's following this decision that the Umayyads attacked Alva and Castile in the 860s during Ordoingu I's reign that we discussed in episode 12. But internal problems prevented any more expeditions until 878, when the ill-fated double-column raid led by Prince Almundid that we talked about last episode was launched against Galicia. Our sources indicate that by this point, the emir could no longer rely on massive amounts of conscripts to fill the ranks of the army whenever needed, since there seems to have been a lot of resistance to the draft. Only when they faced the infidel could the emir command widespread military support. Otherwise, he could only really rely on his full-time professional soldiers. So, in a move that was undoubtedly designed to increase his popularity, Muhammad actually moved away from conscription and towards voluntary military service. Consequently, the demilitarization of the native population of the emirate was to be an important and ultimately disastrous feature of the 10th and 11th century history of Al-Andalus. But manpower problems were not the only wolves of catastrophe nipping at the ankles of the emirate. And what I'm about to say will sound really familiar, but it seems like the root of the problem was the increasing rate of conversion to Islam. In a similar process to what happened in the last decades of the Umayyad Caliphate of Syria, large numbers of Andalusi Christians were becoming Muslims. These new converts, now full members of the Muslim community, naturally sought to play a full role in the politics of Al-Andalus, and in doing so, they unavoidably came up against the opposition of established elite groups like the Umayyad Mawali and other Arab and Berber leaders. It's a really hard thing to try and pull anything like census data from a time and place that had nothing of the sort. Therefore, when we see estimates for conversion rates in the 9th and 10th centuries, 
What we're really looking at is the result of a lot of hard work done by historians that are ultimately still best guesses. And the guesses I've seen range from 50 to 70% of the population of Al-Andalus being Muslim by this point. As we've seen, conversion among the native Iberian elites occurred rather quickly, since that was the most expedient way to retain their position in power. Though initially, plenty of Christians were employed by the government of Al-Andalus, by the mid-9th century, anyone who wanted a career in the expanding government bureaucracy had to be a Muslim. But that was the situation at the tippy-top. On the ground level, mass conversion brought with it a set of problems that once again should sound familiar to you. If you'll recall, under Islamic law, Jews and Christians were obligated to pay a poll tax in order to be allowed to live in Muslim lands. And this was a great and really important source of revenue for the kingdom. So, paradoxically, conversion to Islam actually weakened the Muslim state apparatus. And my own analysis of the situation is that what you have here are religious goals combined with expansionist pragmatism, clashing with the realities of post-conquest governing necessities. Meaning that when Islam was first blooming, the implied, if not stated goal, was to spread the word across the world as fast and effectively as possible. This was achieved through evangelism, forced conversions, in post-conquest incentives such as tax relief and expanded rights for Muslims. It seems like the loss of revenue through conversion was never really thought about or seriously addressed in the initial centuries of expansion, since wealth could always be obtained through raiding or further conquest. But once again, the goal was a religious one to spread Islam not a pragmatic one, as in how to establish stable long-term revenues in newly conquered land. And this is where expansionist pragmatism comes in. It worked at first, because when the caliphate was bursting onto the world stage, they had a massive amount of non-Muslims paying the extra tax. But you can't expand and raid forever. At some point, diplomatic and trade relations will be established with neighbors. And once conversion rates hit a certain mark, post-conquest governing realities kick in. And now, every year, you are losing revenue, further weakening the very state and institutions that were supposed to support the Islamic mission. So, you can see the problem here. But it gets even more complicated, because increased conversions didn't only have a fiscal impact. It had political and social impacts to go along with them. If you'll recall episode 7, there was a point at which a sizable army from Syria made its way to Iberia, and whose members were eventually settled around Al-Andalus. When these warriors were settled, the terms of their settlement stated that either they were obliged to render military service or they could pay a tax to be excused from military service. 
But now, you had new native Iberian Muslims that had no such obligations. In this way, the new converts actually enjoyed a more favorable tax regime than the older Muslims. Which, you can imagine, infuriated the long-established Muslim population. It's speculated that this very problem is what drove Emir Muhammad to shift from compulsory military service to a voluntary one as a way to solve this tension. But as a result, the Emir now had one less source of revenue and one less source of guaranteed manpower. But the hits just kept on coming. As a three-year famine arose in 865, followed by another in 873, and the Emir had no choice but to abandon the collection of tithes as a form of relief for the already strained population. And right when things are really not looking good and stable, pragmatic government is needed the most, enter the man I referenced earlier this episode, Hashim bin Abdulaziz, who really comes through as a petty, short-sighted racist who will come to cause a whole lot of problems for the emir. You see, Abdulaziz seems to have despised Muwalids. In a previous episode, I defined Muwalid as someone of mixed Arab and Berber ethnicity. But the term Muwalid can actually mean different things, depending on time and place. It can refer to any Arab mixed ethnicity. But in the 9th century, it could also refer to native Iberians that had converted to Islam. And from what I've gathered, Abdulaziz really disliked the idea of native Iberians who converted to Islam having any kind of political power. And it just so happens that by 875, he became the emir's chief minister. But before we can get into his shenanigans, we have to set the scene for all the rebellions that plagued the emirate. As you are well aware, the city of Toledo was always a hotbed of rebellion against the government of Cordoba. So when the previous emir, Abdullahman II, died, Toledo did what Toledo always did, go into open revolt which they did this time by driving out the governor and beginning attacks on Cordoban territory. Emir Muhammad responded by sending reinforcements to Calatrava, where the usual loyal Berbers were stationed. But these reinforcements were ambushed by the Toledans only a few miles from Cordoba itself and slaughtered. Yikes. Toledo was then joined by many local Berbers and even more dangerously, entered into an alliance with Ordoinu I, who sent a force to help the rebels fight the emir. The next year, though, the Christian Muslim allies were narrowly defeated by the emir. Later, in 873, Toledo asked for peace and was given generous terms of surrender. They were to send hostages and begin paying the tithe again. But the Toledans, could choose their own governor. Muhammad's policy to control Toledo was not dissimilar to what his predecessors did, which was to seek and build alliances with several of the powerful rural Berber clans that dominated the Iberian countryside. 
but they were not alone in seeking outside help. Toledo also brought in outsiders, notably the Benukasi of the Ebro Valley. As mentioned in the previous episode, Benukasi family members are even mentioned as governors of Toledo. By the end of the century, we even have mention of a Benukasi governor launching attacks in the Linares area close to Cordoba. But Benukasi influence in Toledo came to an abrupt end with the assassination of the governor at the time in 906. Allegedly, shortly after, Toledo asked for an alliance with Alfonso III, but it doesn't seem like that request came to anything. So, now we get back to Abdulaziz. In 868, the emir launched a surprise attack on Merida at the prompting of Abdulaziz. But to be fair, Merida had been defying the authority of Cordoba under the leadership of our old Muwalid friend from last episode, Ibn Marwan. The city was taken fairly quickly, and Muhammad installed a Numayad governor. The story might have ended there, but for Abdulaziz. As the leader of the anti-Muwalid faction, Abdulaziz hated Ibn Marwan in particular, and their beef had some history behind it. So when Ibn Marwan was defeated, Abdulaziz could not resist taking the opportunity to insult him in public, calling him worse than a dog, and then had him slapped around the head. This incident definitely cemented the absolute hatred these men had for each other. After that, Ibn Marwan, along with some of his companions, fled from the city, where he was so obviously not wanted in. Though he was pursued for a while, he was eventually allowed to settle in the village of Badajoz, where he made his headquarters and from where he was able to continually defy Cordoba. He was able to pull this off by disappearing any time he was under threat into the no-man's land north of the Tagus River, biding his time until the danger had passed. It's at this point where he and Alfonso III established an alliance, where Alfonso would help Ibn Marwan out when he was dodging the Umayyads, and Ibn Marwan would then return the favor by allowing Alfonso safe passage through his lands when the Christians were on the warpath against the Umayyads. This alliance served both parties very well. Then, in 876, Ibn Marwan was able to capture his most hated enemy, Abdulaziz, who had apparently been sent against him by the emir. I imagine that Ibn Marwan had a great time trying to decide what kind of punishment to inflict upon Abdulaziz. In the end, he decided to send his prize in chains as a goodwill gift to King Alfonso III. A massive humiliation for Cordoba. Because remember, Abdulaziz wasn't just some guy. He was the chief administrator of Al-Andalus. He had been the emir's right-hand man. But no longer. Of all the various uprisings against the emirate of Cordoba during the reign of Muhammad, the rebellion of Ibn Hafsun 
was by far the most threatening. Because it occurred in the heartland of Cordoban power, Umad ibn Hafsun came from a family of property owners from the Ronda area, in the province of Malaga. They were native Iberians who converted to Islam in the reign of al-Hakam I. But things took a turn for young Ibn Hafsun when he killed one of his neighbors in a fight. Rather than face the consequences, he ran away to the wild hills east of Ronda and became an outlaw. But his crimes were soon catching up to him, as more and more people were looking to get some revenge on him. So he fled again, this time to what is modern-day Algeria, where he found work in a tailor shop. The story then goes that while there he was approached by a fellow Iberian, who urged him to return, but this time to set his sights higher than petty banditry, but to return and lead a revolt. Ibn Hafsun did in fact return, and he set up shop in a long-abandoned Roman fortification called Bobastro. Here, he rebuilt the castle, and from about 881, he started growing his own warlordship, where the marauders took to raiding the surrounding small towns. It was this rebellion in Malaga I mentioned last episode that diverted so much attention of the emir to his southern borders. In 883, Ibn Hafsun made a temporary peace with the emirate, but this peace didn't last long, and Ibn Hafsun came to dominate the hinterland of Malaga. This was the precarious situation the emirate found itself in, when, in August 886, Emir Muhammad died. He was 63 years old and had ruled the emirate for 34 years. In the last years of his reign, he rarely left Cordoba, and the campaigns against Ibn Hafsun had been led by his son and successor, Al-Mundid. But fortunately, the kingdom was passed into capable hands. The new emir, now in his early 40s, was a veteran military leader with vast fighting experience, having led numerous campaigns against the Christians in the north and rebels inside Al-Andalus. And by all accounts, the chroniclers present him as extremely effective, both in military and civil administrative affairs. And his first order of business was to finally put an end to Ibn Hafsun's reign of terror. He led a determined siege of Ibn Hafsun's stronghold at Bobastro, where, in June 888, Al-Mundid died. He was 46 years old and had ruled the emirate for just under two years. Thanks for listening. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.